Chapter sixty six of the D'Artagnan Romances, Volume three, Part one by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Journey. It was perhaps the fiftieth time since the day on which we opened this history that this man, with a heart of bronze and muscles of steel, had left house and friends, everything in short, to go in search of fortune and death. The one, that is to say, death had constantly retreated before him as if afraid of him the other that is to say fortune for a month past only had really made an alliance with him although he was not a great philosopher after the fashion of either epicurus or socrates he was a powerful spirit having knowledge of life and endowed with thought no one is as brave as adventurous or as skilful as d'artagnan without being at the same time inclined to be a dreamer he had picked up here and there some scraps of Monsieur de la Rochefoucauld, worthy of being translated into Latin by Monsieur de Port Royal, and he had made a collection, en passant, in the society of Athos and Aramis, of many morsels of Seneca and Cicero, translated by them and applied to the uses of common life. That contempt of riches which our Gascon had observed as an article of faith during the thirty-five first years of his life had for a long time been considered by him as the first article of the code of bravery article first said he a man is brave because he has nothing a man has nothing because he despises riches therefore with these principles which as we have said had regulated the thirty-five first years of his life d'artagnan was no sooner possessed of riches than he felt it necessary to ask himself if in spite of his riches he were still brave to this, for any other but D'Artagnan, the events of the Place de Greve might have served as a reply. Many consciences would have been satisfied with them, but D'Artagnan was brave enough to ask himself sincerely and conscientiously if he were brave. Therefore, to this. But it appears to me that I drew promptly enough, and cut and thrust pretty freely on the Place de Greve, to be satisfied of my bravery. D'Artagnan had himself replied, gently captain that is not an answer i was brave that day because they were burning my house and there are a hundred and even a thousand to speak against one that if those gentlemen of the riots had not formed that unlucky idea their plan of attack would have succeeded or at least it would not have been i who would have opposed myself to it now what will be brought against me i have no house to be burnt in Bretagne. i have no treasure there that can be taken from me no but i have my skin that precious skin of monsieur d'artagnan which to him is worth more than all the houses and all the treasures of the world that skin to which i cling above everything else because it is everything considered the binding of a body which encloses a heart very warm and ready to fight and consequently to live then i do desire to live and in reality i live much better more completely since i have become rich who the devil ever said that money spoiled life upon my soul it is no such thing on the contrary it seems as if i absorbed a double quantity of air and sun mordieu what will it be then if i double that fortune and if instead of the switch i now hold in my hand i should ever carry the baton of a marechal then i really don't know if there will be from that moment enough air and sun for me in fact this is not a dream 
who the devil would oppose it if the king made me a marechal as his father king louis the thirteenth made a duke and constable of albert de loigne am i not as brave and much more intelligent than that imbecile de vitry ha that's exactly what will prevent my advancement i have too much wit luckily if there is any justice in this world fortune owes me many compensations she owes me certainly a recompense for all i did for anne of austria and an indemnification for all she has not done for me then at the present i am very well with a king and with a king who has the appearance of determining to reign may god keep him in that illustrious road for if he is resolved to reign he will want me and if he wants me he will give me what he has promised me warmth and light so that i march comparatively now as i marched formerly from nothing to everything only the nothing of to-day is all of the former days there has only this little change taken place in my life and now let us see let us take the part of the heart as i just now was speaking of it but in truth i only spoke of it from memory and the gascon applied his hand to his breast as if he were actually seeking the place where his heart was ha wretch murmured he smiling with bitterness ha poor mortal species you hoped for an instant that you had not a heart and now you find you have one bad courtier as thou art and even one of the most seditious you have a heart which speaks to you in favor of monsieur fouquet and what is monsieur fouquet when the king is in question a conspirator a real conspirator who did not even give himself the trouble to conceal his being a conspirator therefore what a weapon would you not have against him if his good grace and his intelligence had not made a scabbard for that weapon an armed revolt for in fact monsieur fouquet has been guilty of an armed revolt thus while the king vaguely suspects monsieur fouquet of rebellion i know it i could prove that monsieur fouquet had caused the shedding of the blood of his majesty's subjects now then let us see knowing all that and holding my tongue what further would this heart wish in return for a kind action of monsieur fouquet's for an advance of fifteen thousand livres for a diamond worth a thousand pistoles for a smile in which there was as much bitterness as kindness i save his life now then i hope continued the musketeer that this imbecile of a heart is going to preserve silence and so be fairly quits with monsieur fouquet now then the king becomes my son and as my heart is quits with monsieur fouquet let him beware who places himself between me and my son forward for his majesty louis the fourteenth forward these reflections were the only impediments which were able to retard the progress of d'artagnan these reflections once made he increased the speed of his horse but however perfect his horse zephyr might be it could not hold out at such a pace forever the day after his departure from paris he was left at chartres at the house of an old friend d'artagnan had met with in an hotelier of that city from that moment the musketeer travelled on post horses 
Thanks to this mode of locomotion, he traversed the space separating Chartres from Chateaubriand, in the last of these two cities, far enough from the coast to prevent anyone guessing that D'Artagnan wished to reach the sea, far enough from Paris to prevent all suspicion of his being a messenger from Louis the Fourteenth, whom D'Artagnan had called his son. Without suspecting that he, who was only at present a rather poor star in the heaven of royalty, would one day make that star his emblem, the messenger of Louis the Fourteenth, we say, quitted the post and purchased a bidet of the meanest appearance, one of those animals which an officer of cavalry would never choose for fear of being disgraced. Accepting the color, this new acquisition recalled to the mind of D'Artagnan the famous orange-colored horse, with which, or rather upon which, he had made his first appearance in the world. Truth to say, from the moment he crossed this new steed, it was no longer D'Artagnan who was traveling. It was a good man clothed in an iron-gray just a corps, brown haut de chausse, holding the medium between a priest and a layman. That which brought him nearest to the churchman was that D'Artagnan had placed on his head a calotte of threadbare velvet, and over the calotte a large black hat. No more sword. A stick hung by a cord to his wrist, but to which he promised himself as an unexpected auxiliary to join upon occasion a good dagger ten inches long concealed under his cloak. Libidet, purchased at Chateaubriand, completed the metamorphosis. It was called, or rather D'Artagnan called it, Furet. Furet. "'If I have changed Zephyr into Furet,' said D'Artagnan, "'I must make some diminutive or other of my own name. So, instead of D'Artagnan, I will be Agnan. Short. That is a concession which I naturally owe to my grey coat, my round hat, and my rusty calotte.' Monsieur d'Artagnan traveled then, pretty easily upon Furet, who ambled like a true butterwoman's pad, and who, with his amble, managed cheerfully about twelve leagues a day, upon four spindle-shanks, of which the practiced eye of d'Artagnan had appreciated the strength and safety beneath the thick mass of hair which covered them. Jogging along, the traveller took notes, studied the country, which he traversed reserved and silent, ever seeking the most plausible pretext for reaching Belle-en-Mire and foreseeing everything without arousing suspicion. In this manner he was enabled to convince himself of the importance the event assumed in proportion as he drew near to it. In this remote country, in this ancient duchy of Britannia, which was not France at that period, and is not so even now, the people knew nothing of the King of France. They not only did not know him, but were unwilling to know him. One face, a single one, floated visibly for them upon the political current. Their ancient dukes no longer ruled them. Government was a void, nothing more. In place of the sovereign duke, the seigneurs of parishes reigned without control, and above these seigneurs, God, who has never been forgotten in Britannia. Among these suzerains of chateaux and belfries, the most powerful, the richest, and the most popular was Monsieur Fouquet, seigneur of Belle-Isle. Even in the country, even within sight of that mysterious isle, legends and traditions consecrate its wonders. Everyone might not penetrate it. The isle, of an extent of six leagues in length and six in breadth, was a seigneurial property, which the people had for a long time respected, covered as it was with the name of Retz, so redoubtable in the country. Shortly after the erection of this seigneury into a marquisate, Belial passed to Monsieur Fouquet. The celebrity of the isle did not date from yesterday. 
Its name, or rather its qualification, is traced back to the remotest antiquity. The ancients called it Calanese, from two Greek words signifying a beautiful isle. Thus, at a distance of eighteen hundred years, it had borne in another idiom the same name it still bears. There was then something in itself, in this property of M. Fouquet's, besides his position of six leagues off the coast of France, a position which makes it a sovereign in its maritime solitude, like a majestic ship which disdains roads and proudly casts anchor in mid-ocean. D'Artagnan learnt all this without appearing the least in the world astonished. He also learnt that the best way to get intelligence was to go to La Roche-Bernard, a tolerably important city at the mouth of the Vilaine. Perhaps there he could embark. If not, crossing the salt marshes, he would repair to Gurand en Quasique to wait for an opportunity to cross over to Belle-Isle. He had discovered, besides, since his departure from Chateaubriand, that nothing would be impossible for Furet under the impulsion of Monsieur Agnon, and nothing to Monsieur Agnon through the initiative of Furet. He prepared then to sup off a teal and a torteau in a hotel of La Roche-Bernard, and ordered to be brought from the cellar to wash down these two Breton dishes some cider, which the moment it touched his lips he perceived to be more Breton still. End of chapter 66 Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia